Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 83 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it's... The second Bar Mitzvah episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that in Judaism, Judaism? (laughs) In Judaism, when someone reaches the age of 83, they may celebrate a second Bar Mitzvah. Judaism. Yes. You you made yes. it sound like it was Judaism. some kind of like far off land and the Princess Bride or something. Or, or <laughs> Judaism. Or Spaceballs. <laughs> Isn't what's her name like the princess from Judaism? No, no, she's actually uh she's a druid. That's why she's a druid oh, princess. That's right. Yeah. Same same <laughs> thing, right? Uh, maybe. You'll have to ask Mel Brooks about that for sure. Or but at any rate Gary Oldman. With Yeah, there, with that fun little bit of knowledge for you. I am, of course, Matt, and uh, in about two and a half minutes, you'll get to find out who the other person is. And he may or may not be Tim. May or may not. I have yet <laughs> Stay to decide. Stay tuned, kids. Yes. Same bad time, same bad channel. Uh, so how's your week been, sir? I participated in something quite ridiculous on Saturday. I originally was supposed to be going to see A Hard Day's Night at uh, the silent movie theater over here. Yes, it's a silent movie theater, but they still play badass movies in sound. However, I ended up going to see a cover band. And Matt, have you ever gone to a cover band? Like, I'm not I'm not just like a band who's like, oh, we're all going to be playing Bon Jovi tunes. But these guys oh, actually no, no, dress up sure. as sure. these oh. band people. I... I, I... I'm trying to think. ABBA, maybe? No, no. I know that I've been I've been to some performances that were close to that, but never an actual true tribute band or, as you are saying, a true cover band uh, who attempt to emulate the uh, a particular band. I went mainly because it was at the House of Blues. And I've always wanted to go to that venue, and I thought, oh, hell, man, why not? And it was a a Rolling Stones cover band having a battle of music with the Beatles cover band. So it was like the ultimate rock battle that never happened and never should happen, in my opinion. But throughout the entire (laughs) thing, I was trying to think, like, should I be enjoying this or should I, I shouldn't be feeling as awkward as I am feeling watching these guys perform because some of them are super dedicated to it. I mean, like they are committing to shit and some of the other ones aren't up to snuff with the original members. Like the Beatles guys, you know, try to emulate the Beatles without trying to go too far. They wore the clothing. They had the mop tops you know, the guy who was John Lennon wore the glasses. They talked like them. They didn't try to do any, like, reconstructive face surgery to look like the Beatles. So it was enjoyable, fun. They sounded great. When the Rolling Stones came out, the uh, the guy playing Mick Jagger was Mick Jagger. And everybody else was... They were, like, in their 50s, 60s, probably pushing 70s by now wearing eyeliner and it looks like they just got off their day job from working at insurance agency or a travel agency they looked that uncomfortable up there but yet they still sounded pretty good it was just a weird weird feeling so two questions that i have first off 
you had a mop top Beatles. Yes. So were they uh, versus a current age uh, uh, Rolling Stone? Yeah, that was the current age. It, they were all older guys, and what they did is each one played a set. So when the Beatles came out, they did the set from Ed Sullivan, and then the Rolling Stones came out, and they did a set from this, I guess, mid to late 60s, early 70s. And then the Beatles came back out, did the more you know late 60s stuff, and then the set, you know. When, okay, so when the Beatles came back out, and they are now doing post- Help! They're now starting to get into the Sergeant uh, Pepper. D- yeah, Sergeant Pepper is starting to enter the psychedelic uh, phase. Did they change their outfits, or were they still mop topped? No, yeah, they uh, they they wore the Sergeant Pepper outfits. Uh, okay, okay, which is pretty and cool. Then and then when the actual older guys who were the Rolling Stones did they try to make themselves look younger at first, and then more relaxed as they or they did. They did. Just, and yet, when they were trying to look wow. younger, they looked like old dudes trying to look like young dudes. Slash. Oh, that's terrible. Cross-dressers. But yet, I mean, wow. they sounded... The guy who's Mick Jagger sounded really, really good. I mean, he was committed, performed the shit out of it, and it creeped me the fuck out. So, okay. I think he succeeded. Well, then, awesome, awesome. So then I would only follow up with this question. House of Blues in L.A., uh, better, worse, or the same as House of Blues here in Houston? Better. It is voted the number one concert venue in the United States. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Sound is phenomenal. It feels like you go into it. It looks well. The building itself looks like a shack, and you go into it. And it feels like you're in a an old like concert venue in like Louisiana or something. So it's very kind of like bayou feeling to it. Right on. So well, okay then. It was nice. That's How was your cool. week? My week was pretty normal. We did the 4th of July thing on the 4th of July. So we did the fireworks with the kids and sparklers and fun and, and you know, grilled the dogs and all that kind of stuff uh, and hung out with the fam, uh, talked with the kids about the importance of the actual day. I believe it's important that we, you know, don't waste America's birthday. Uh, we should at least... You know, tell the kids what it's about and why we're celebrating it. Because you know, we gotta. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't. We don't. It's not like we need to have the Battle Hymn of the Republic playing in the background or anything right now. But I just think it's important that we celebrate America's birthday properly. So we talk. We tell. We tell the kids about the Declaration of Independence and all that kind of stuff. And uh you know we do that kind of thing it's not like a big ceremony or anything but do you have uh, them all recite the declaration of independence oh dear god no No. (laughs) i I personally though i personally do make sure to read the declaration of independence um on uh july 4th at least once a year i try to read the, the declaration of independence and the constitution twice a year um but always at least once a year and then for sure, the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. A lot of fun, and other than that, just pretty much same old, same old, nothing special. Cool, man. What kind of dogs did you eat? Hebrew Nationals? We, did, or? Uh, we actually did the... Um, uh, my father-in-law's, it's actually called the Nasty Dogs. Now, they're basically... Have you, I'm sure you've been to Wiener Schnitzel, right? Yeah. Okay, well... Uh, he actually, after because there are none here in Houston, and the closest one it, for him it w- was up in the Dallas area, 
And he just absolutely loves Wienerschnitzel. And he has spent the last 10, 12 years trying to perfect his, the Wienerschnitzel recipe purely by taste. And about two years ago, two or three years ago, he finally got it. And so that's and, and what happened was is one of my nieces uh, had come by while he was actually grilling the dogs. And of course, when you grill properly, you're going to get a little char action. I mean, they're not they're not like black sticks or anything, but you definitely get that nice little those char marks and everything that you get when you really good grill the hot dog well. And she looked at them and said, "Ew, that's nasty." And so the nasty dog was born. And we did those. They were awesome. So basically just chili dogs. Well, that really, sounds a really lot better than a kerosene dog. dog, which I have had one of those before. <laughs> not as good. No, I would imagine not. Probably tastes rather kerosene-y. A little bit. A little bit. Mm, yeah. Well, All right. Well, if nothing else uh, happened to you and nothing else happened to me, do you want to go ahead and get to the fun stuff? We shall. Let's do it then. Here we go, folks. It's the news. Yes, it's the news. All right, we're going to start off with an Inquisitor article from Inquisitor.com, courtesy of nobody, apparently, because I guess the Inquisitor just likes to do their own stuff. Boba Fett movie casts Django actor Tamura Morrison in 2016 Star Wars 7 spinoff. Yeah, they don't know exactly what, um, but... They do know for sure that the Boba Fett movie may have cast Tamira Morrison as the fabled bounty hunter for the Star Wars spinoff. Yay! What do we know? Now, the interesting thing here is that in this article, Hasbro actually released, they actually leaked the entire list of the Star Wars release years. So it turns out that in 2014, we're getting Rebels, which is the uh, TV show thingy, or whatever, that, that uh, I believe is coming out here pretty soon. Then you got Episode 7 in 2015. 2016 is Boba Fett. 2017 is Episode 8. 2018 is Solo. 2019 is Episode 9. And then 2020 is Red 5. So now, all of the stuff, all the pieces are in place, all the movies, and we have Hasbro to thank for that. So that's just kind of a little bit of a bonus thing. And then the article does go on to talk about that Tamira Morrison was actually specifically listed as Boba Fett for this. And Morrison also, of course, played Jango Fett and the Clone Troopers in the Attack of the Clones and voiced Boba Fett in the 2004 special edition of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. So if it is really him, what's the storyline that they're going to be focusing on for the movie? Who knows? It'll be fun and exciting. I was just assuming that these spin-off movies, specific, I mean, especially when it comes to Boba Fett and Solo, are probably going to be things that took place well before Episode 7. At the very latest, we might see some kind of storyline between Episodes 6 and 7, which for Boba Fett will be fun, considering he's supposed to be dead in a Sarlacc pit. But... Uh, you know, whatever. So, I don't know. 
I, I'm, I'm still excited about these movies because uh, specifically Boba Fett and Solo, just because they don't have to rely on anything that's happening in seven, eight, and nine to have all sorts of fun and adventures that they could do. So that's where I'm at. But at any rate, what would you like to? Where, what do you want to lead off with this evening, sir? <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I just sent you a couple articles or links to a couple pictures because I'm going to lead off my news with a little news over uh, more recent posters that have been banned by the MPAA. Well, not banned, but not accepted for circulation at your local movie theater. (laughs) Uh, First one being, in the U.S., the MPAA banned Terry Gilliam's upcoming movie, the poster for his The Zero Theorem. And if you know Terry Gilliam movies, Brazil, uh, Baron Munchausen, this was going to be the third, uh, this is going to be the, the last trilogy of his, like, what, what is it, like the, the futuristic Big Brother type of movie. First one being Brazil, second one being uh, 12 Monkeys, and then you have The Zero Theorem. So you would expect a really cool poster, and the poster that they banned is kind of a neat poster, I guess. And the reason why they banned it, for the most part, is because you see Christoph Waltz's butt crack. Kinda. Like, you see the shape of his bum. Matt, do you find this offensive? Just looking at that, I, I went and clicked on these links real fast so I could see what you, where you were going to be going with this. And I guess you have to know ahead of time that that's his bu- that, who that is because it's just the backside of a dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't even really know who it is based off just this picture. Yeah, it's some fetus-looking dude. Yeah, I I know. This is dumb. This is dumb. That you you see no definition on the chick. And what little definition you do see is nothing worse than you would see in a PG movie. You would see a bare butt in a PG movie, especially in a non-sexual way, just someone sitting in, you know, that's dumb. Uh, yeah. But the next one, which I think is <laughs> which I think is possibly dumber is for the guardians of galaxy the latin america poster now matt if you look at that poster uh, that was the one that i laughed at oh yeah i'm i'm with you on that i'm looking at this i'm like so they have the first poster uh, up top that they ended up approving but on the bottom they have what the american poster looks like and it has guns chris pratt star lord is holding a weapon and it's a very kind of like crowded looking poster with ships guns knives uh, you know, at, you know, like it. Obviously, they are about to kick some ass and probably murder a bunch of CGI aliens. But Latin America—that's a little too much to be <laughs> to be promoting violence with laser guns. And I, I mean, we're dealing—we're talking about a part of the world where soccer refs get their heads ripped off in the stadium. Yeah, or, or like. Five kids kidnapped every 20 seconds. I mean, are they really worried about the laser gun? The pretend laser gun in the movie poster? (laughs) I think they have more important things to deal with. Yeah, so like, with the poster they approved, they took away all the spaceships that are in the back and left, well, they left one spaceship. They took away the planet. They, everybody with the exception of Chris Pratt's Star-Lord is 
positioned the same exact way, except they're not holding weapons. Like, they're all doing the same kind of, like, pose where their elbows are bent out and their arms are... And they're kind of, like, pushing a, a particular part of their body out, like their breast. And it, it kind of looks like they're really holding in a really hefty turd. And then you have Chris Pratt standing there in the middle looking like a douchebag. And, yeah, you know, it just kind of takes away, I think, from the, I guess, fun of the poster. Because it's, I mean, the, the U.S. poster is fun. I mean, come on, let's be honest. I mean, Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's the first part of my news for today. <laughs> well, I, yeah, must agree. That, um, wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with something... Uh, Equally as absurd. Ha ha! The longest film ever made receives 72-minute trailer. <laughs> this one comes to us from thefilmstage.com, courtesy of Jordan Raup. The longest film ever made receives 72-minute trailer. It was only a few years ago that it was reported that on the longest film ever made, the 10-day-long Modern Times Forever, coming from Danish artist Superflex. Well, now we have Anders Weberg, a Swedish artist and filmmaker, is now out to claim the record with his upcoming experimental project, Ambiance. Running 720 hours, a.k.a. 30 days, it won't premiere until 2020, but he's now released the first trailer, which clocks in just under the length of a regular feature. Now, it's only available until July 20th, so don't dally. This 72-minute preview highlights what is described as, quote, space and time is intertwined into a surreal dreamlike journey beyond places. So, end quote. How much are the tickets going to be for it? Is it all going to count as, like, one movie? So if we go on a Tuesday, we can pay five bucks to see a 30-day... Yeah, and stay in the tr- and stay in the movie theater for 30 days. Uh, it's interesting, though, because... Okay, now... He's. I don't. I don't know how this is going to work. Weberg indicates it will be his last film, and after a single global screening in all continents of the world in 2020, it will be destroyed. So I guess this is really just a one-off thing. I'm not sure, you know. But it does say though. For now, one can see the trailer below and check back in 2016. When a 7 hour and 20 minute trailer will be released. Followed by a 72 hour trailer in 2018. So, you know, spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) And then leading up to the month long screening in 2020. Who in their right mind (laughs) will waste 30 freaking days of their life. To watch, uh, to sit in the movie theater. That's 30, that's a month. What if you found, what if you found out like midway through that you're dying of cancer? You know, like, why would you want to be put in that position of like, oh, well, maybe this movie is so good that I need to stick around for the 15 more days and I cannot go through chemo right now? It's, it's just horrible. A lot of, a lot of badness can come from this situation. I don't know if I like it. I I don't even know what you're supposed to do with something. I I mean, who's actually going to even sit and watch? I bet you, honestly, I'll bet you it's really only like five or six hours long. And the middle of it is just 
714 hours of just white. It's just a blank screen. So that people are going to fall asleep, walk away, and then come back at the end and see, I didn't miss anything. Just absolutely insane. But um, anyway, what do you got, sir? What's next for you? I'm just kind of stuck in what... (laughs) (laughs) Don't have anything to follow that up with? (laughs) Uh, I, I guess so. It's not as bizarre, though. Uh, okay, so Kevin Smith has kind of taken the, the the helm at easing the minds of fanboys when it comes to comic book movies or Star Wars movies or just pretty much like, you know, all things nerd. Well, he recently visited the Star Wars Episode Seven set and he basically told everybody, like, if you are worried about this movie, don't sweat it. This movie is going to be great. And this is the exact quote um, he recently was in a uh, was in Switzerland for the new, ooh, well this is going to be fun pronouncing this Neuchatel N E U C H A T E L International Film Festival and this was discovered by Slash Film and this is what he said quote I saw old friends who I haven't seen since childhood who weren't really friends but I love them more than some of my fucking relatives. I saw uniforms. I saw artillery I haven't seen since I was a kid. I saw them shooting an actual sequence in a set that was real. I walked across the set, there were explosions, and it looked like a shot right out of a Star Wars movie. End quote. Uh, And here's another quote down here about it. When you walk on that set, man, I don't know how else to describe it except thusly. You use another pop culture reference to describe this pop culture phenomenon. It's like the Field of Dreams, the Kevin Costner movie. And if J.J. builds it, we're all going to come hard because it's amazing. It looks fantastic. So if anyone out there wondering if he's going to pull it off, he's pulling it off. He showed me cutscenes, he showed me sequences, images, pictures. I cried and I hugged that guy. End all quotes. And he picture he took a selfie of himself. I don't know if you saw it or not, of him just weeping because he was so happy and ecstatic that the movie is going to be the sequel that we've always wanted, pertaining to Star Wars. And in other Kevin Smith news, real quick, I thought this was kind of interesting from MovieWeb.com, an article entitled "Fake Batman vs Superman Script Written and Leaked by Kevin Smith." Question mark? And this is what it says. It's written by Alan Orange. Quote, We just received an interesting tip from an anonymous source deep within the Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice production. This comes just moments after we posted a story about the introduction of three new lesser-known heroes in the movie. Badass Digest has gotten their hands on a PDF that claims to be the legitimate shooting script, and in it, there are a number of new secondary characters and locations. This came hot on the heels of Latino Review claiming four new villains were going to appear alongside Lex Luthor. Well, guess what? If we're to believe the email we just got our hands on, not only is the script fake, it was written by Kevin Smith. Yes, that Kevin Smith, the director of Clerks in Red State, the guy who has been dropping Batman v Superman hits, excuse me, hints since the film was announced. The same guy who is best friends with Bruce Wayne himself, Ben Affleck. 
Kevin Smith wrote the screenplay in conjunction with Warner Brothers with the studio, purposefully leaking the script to various movie bloggers and sites, helping to throw the scent off of what director Zack Snyder was actually attempting to accomplish with Batman v Superman. The account of events sounds pretty accurate and lines up with what we've heard before, that Warner Brothers and DC Comics were going to throw a lot of red herrings into the water. Take a look at that letter and decide for yourself if this news is true. And uh, this is a portion of the letter that I'll just read. This isn't a scoop regarding the plot of the details of Batman vs. Superman movie, or am I writing you in order to spoil or disappoint the general public? My insider info regards a who has been the source of the vast majority of leaked information as regards to the movie and more importantly, why? Up until last year, I worked for as a PA for a Warner Brothers exec until I was promoted to marketing it was here I and several others were approached to work directly and indirectly for Susan Knoll and sometimes Deborah Snyder. It was here that I became part of the particular strategy that Warner Brothers has been using to great effect. Earlier this year, a screenplay for Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, which was commissioned by Warner Brothers, was leaked to several gossip sites. It was a scanned PDF of the entire screenplay bearing an official Warner Brothers watermark. The script has been the source of almost every leaked detail about the movie for the past six months. It has been posted on sites and quickly removed due to cease and desist letters from Warner Brothers. While the screenplay is legit and the watermark is legit, and it was commissioned by Charles Robin himself. But it is written by neither David S. Goyer or Chris Torino. It was written by Kevin Smith. And the letter goes on from there. It's pretty interesting. I am, If this is true, and... I, I don't know. This all sounds pretty legit. I'm happy that this is the case. That a studio is seriously trying their darndest to throw people off. So when the movie comes out or the first trailer comes out, it's going to be something completely different than what we expected. It'd be even cool if like some of the first stills they, they you know they had made available just recently of Superman and the bat suit were completely fake. Like, if it was totally different, it would just be so, 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 so cool. And I, I don't know, that just kind of puts a little faith into the studio system a little bit in uh, in my book. And I appreciate that. That is just pretty damn spiffy. I, 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 I agree. I like that uh, they're going to make you... They're going to keep you guessing and keep you wondering so that you will have the best chance of truly being presented with an original spectacle instead of just the same old tripe everybody seems to think they're going to be fed. Yeah. I agree. Good call, sir. Alright, well let's see here. We'll bounce around. Uh, let's go here. We're going to go with CinemaBlend.com, courtesy of Gabe Toro. Star Trek 3 will return to the franchise's roots head to deep space. Turns out, uh, during a, a podcast with humans from Earth, Roberto Orsi claims that for the next entry in the Star Trek saga, they'll be going where no man has gone before. Quote, In Into Darkness, they set out finally where the original series started. The first two films, especially 2009, was an origin story. It was about them coming together. So they weren't the characters they were in the original series. They were going into them, and that continues on in the second movie. So in this movie, they are closer than they are to the original series characters that you have ever seen. They have set off on their five-year mission 
so their adventure is going to be in deep space, end quote. What do you think, Tim? Are, uh, me, personally, this is like the best fucking news I've heard since I had to scratch my fucking head going, really? Khan? Really? Do you think they're just going to end up butting heads with Klingons, or are they actually going to have some kind of unique original experience on their now five-year mission? Well, I definitely... This is awesome news. And I remember reading about this uh, around the same time when, when you found out about it. And I was super excited. It gives me hope that one of my favorite aliens in the TV show... And shit, I cannot remember what the hell they're called. But they're like the the little thin, pale-looking aliens with the huge-ass brains. And they speak telepathically. <laughs> Yes, okay, sure. I remember. I don't th- I can't recall the name, but I I know what you're referring to, sure. Yeah, they're like all these old like little old dudes or they might even been women, but they they all talk like this. Yeah. Yeah, we we are going to control you and you know, it was just yeah, so from cool like the very first episodes of yeah, from the yeah, from the very first episodes of Star Trek, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh it, it's cool. I, I'm excited. I like the idea of them not returning to frickin' Earth. Which is never fun. <laughs> I hear you. Well, good then. I, I, yeah, I like like you. I am super stoked about this. I just uh, am really hoping that we can get something truly original. I mean, even if they do end up bashing heads with the Klingons, I, I would be okay with that to a certain degree. Mainly because we got a sneak peek of what the Klingons look like, and the Klingons look pretty badass in this version of the series. So, I mean, it's better than a little bit of eyeliner rubbed on your forehead to make cranial ridges so there's you know there is that at any rate so yeah all right well what, what else do you have sir mpaa news the first one here is from cinemablend.com from an article written by mac rodden entitled the mpaa relies on public opinion polls on sex drugs and violence and this is what it says Back in 2006, the Motion Picture Association of America's review board was publicly unmasked for the first time thanks to the fascinating documentary, This Film Is Not Yet Rated, one of Matt's favorite movie-related documentaries. The move caused a minor scandal at the time, as some felt it was an invasion of privacy, but now two of the board's longtime members have decided to start their own company and unmask themselves. Needless to say, they have a whole lot of knowledge to share with potential clients, specifically why the MPAA is so much is so much softer on violence than sex. The disparity between what is allowed when it comes to the physical violence and what is allowed when it comes to sex has long been a favorite talking point of the MPAA's biggest critics. Why is it okay for a 13-year-old to watch someone getting shot in the head but not see a pair of breasts? Well, it turns out that along with just about everything else about the hyper-secretive organization comes down to public opinion polls. Here's what former NPAA board member Howard Friedkin had to say to IndieWire. He says this, quote, The NPAA has knowledge of certain polls that represent parents' feelings about drugs, sexuality, and language. And for some reason, they have become much more sensitive about those issues over at least... The number of years, Barry and I have been there. So they probably do lean more to the conservative side if there's a questionable scene. 
whether it's a PG-13 or an R. So sometimes they are uh, are on the side of caution and go with the R. In quotes. Cinemabla needs to run a couple spell checks through their articles. I thought this was already something that we knew about. Is this news to you, or is this something that you've, you know, you've kind of heard about before? Nope, news to me. Well, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your voiceover style when reading it, but uh, it doesn't, um, it does not ring any bells. Yeah, it, it just sounds like something like, oh, of course they would do that, you know? Yeah, well, I mean... This is the MPAA. We have definitely, between our discussions over the posters with uh, what Seth Rogen had to say a few weeks back, uh, you know, my favorite documentary, uh, this, yeah, it all adds up, but I, I honestly I just hadn't heard this particular angle yet. So, so at any rate, though, for my last piece of news, and it's a, I had to end on a downer, but uh, these things do happen, from CartoonBrew.com, courtesy of Amid Amidi. DreamWorks layoffs, I'm sorry, Dreams, God damn it, DreamWorks lays off dozens of employees as Dragons 2 continues to underperform. Turns out that there were rumors of layoffs at DreamWorks last week, but they weren't confirmed by a reputable source until yesterday when the Animal Animators Union, and uh, this is dated from the 30th of June, I guess, so we're, you know, what, a week in now to this having happened. When the Animators Union, the Animation Guild, posted an item about it on their blog, the Guild reported that the layoffs took place early last week. An estimated 40 to 50 employees were let go. According to DreamWorks, sources that the union spoke with, quote, the studio didn't have enough features that required staff building front-end production elements, so employees in departments that were overstaffed and who didn't have longer-term contracts or assignments were given their walking papers, end quote. Also, apparently the studio gave no prior warning to the employees that it laid off and demanded that they leave the studio that day. Uh, also, there are reports that employees weren't even allowed to return to their cubicles to pack their belongings. Uh, quote, I get that the company needs to be cautious, but I talked to one employee who said she wasn't allowed back to her desk. She was kind of upset, end quote. Um, things are actually, I didn't realize they were this bad. Turns out the DreamWorks stock has plummeted 35% since the beginning of 2014. And that How to Train Your Dragon suffered another steep decline in its third U.S. weekend, dropping 46% at the box office. The first film in the series, by contrast, dropped just 14% in its third weekend. That being wow. said, the movie had a $145 million budget and has already made $292 million. So that's not including, that's just box office receipts. So given the standard formula that a movie needs to double its budget before it starts making money, given marketing and all that kind of stuff that's never really put into the bottom line of a budget that you get to see, I there's got to be more at play here, and I really think it's the whole stock plummeting 35% part that might be uh, causing these things to happen. You know, Tim, you're in the movie world over there in L.A. It's kind of scary, world. man. Did, I mean, have you heard anything about this through 
Anybody that you know in the in the biz? You know, no, not not yet. I'm sure I will <laughs> when I start my job in a couple days. Because <laughs> it's going to be in the in that in the finance ish department of a particular company. So I'm sure this is definitely the talk of the town, and it's just crazy. God, DreamWorks, man, they were they were living the high life there for over a decade at least. I, I'm telling you, and especially with this particular franchise, I was saying when we reviewed it how I really thought this was going to be like their new flagship franchise, and maybe that's still the case, but they're just going to back off on it a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, because they were. Know. I know they were already planning. Uh, how to Train Your Dragon 3 and 4. So, it might just be down to 3. I suppose so. But, at any rate, that's going to go ahead and conclude my my movie news, sir. Did you have anything you wanted to finish her up with? Yes, I just have a few little just kind of mentions here. First one being The Expendables 3 got their rating down to a PG-13. And this is what the Exhibitor Relations tweet said says expendables 3 rated pg-13 for violence including intense sustained gun battles and fight scenes and for language weak sauce and stallone said this quote we want to reach as many people as possible i think we owe it to the next generation we thought we'd join that club for a while end quote uh, next little bit of news real quick. Gilmero del Toro, he says that he might lighten up at the Mountains of Madness to get it made. That is the movie that he's been working on for years. He wanted to make that movie before Pacific Rim. However, it's supposed to be rated R. He wanted to be rated R because, for one thing, Gilmero del Toro is a R-rated type of guy. I mean, hell, just listen to his unrated slash unedited interviews, and you'll definitely know. And uh, I mean, this is what he says to back up his decision for the idea of making it into a PG-13 movie, because he's having trouble mark or uh, figuring out a way to uh, to sell it to studio. He says this quote: "I think that now, with the way I've seen PG-13 become more and more flexible, I think I could do it PG-13 now." So I'm going to explore it with Legendary to be as horrifying as I can, but to not be quite as graphic, in quotes. And I'm getting this information from an article from CinemaBlend.com entitled, entitled The Fearmonger, a PG-13 at the Mountains of Madness, written by Nick Venable. And lastly, and I'll ask Matt, if he wants to comment on any of these three things. I just wanted to mention real quick that uh, I have recently, past few days, I came across an article about the ending of Edge of Tomorrow. So if you have not seen Edge of Tomorrow, spoil alert for maybe just a minute or two, because this definitely touches on the ending of the movie. And if you remember from our interview, Matt w really wasn't happy with the ending, and I didn't care for it as much either. But this is what this Cinema Blend article says from an article entitled, Here's Why Edge of Tomorrow Went With That Happier Ending, written by Sean O'Connell. And they say this, McQuarrie, who is the writer of the film, admits that he knows people didn't like the ending they settled on, but explains that Tom Cruise's desire to stay lighter and comedic changed their course as they worked to a proper ending. 
McQuarrie said Cruz was one of the strongest advocates of playing up the humor in Edge of Tomorrow. Believe me, we appreciate just how funny the movie ended up being. And so they had to shift gears from the original tone of the script, which started out in a much darker place than Cruz and McQuarrie had expected. The screenwriter said, quote, I think the only way to make those disappointed people happy would be to end the movie in a way that wasn't happy. We weren't interested in doing that. It needed to end in a way that wasn't harsh. End all quotes. So thanks to Tom Cruise, the ending was happier. So if you like the ending, yay, Tom Cruise. If not, oh, Scientology did it again. Matt, any comments, questions, concerns about any of those three little tidbits of news? No, um, not really, other than for the uh, Edge of Tomorrow thing. I still don't like the ending, I, but just like when you had initially texted me the uh, article link and everything, I mean, it, it's I, I at least can appreciate knowing their thought process, but that still doesn't make the ending any better. Um, respectfully, uh, Tom Cruise was just simply wrong. Um, they had an ending the way that they wanted it, um, and even with him wanting the happier ending, there was probably still a better way to have worked it out than the way that they did it. So, uh, yeah, and that's all. That, that 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 is it. So there you go. All right. Well, then I guess that's going to conclude the news, which now is going to bring us to I'm the only one who hated it. A segment featuring movies that are either critically acclaimed and or huge box office successes. And yet, despite the press loving it and or the theater-going public loving it, it's a movie that one of us simply hates. Tim, I'm going to let you go first, sir. What's your movie? What is the movie that only you hate? Lay it on us. Well, my 2008 family comedy... <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. It's far from a family comedy. It's about family in, in its most adolescent or in its most mature, you know, the most mature look you can have, you know, when you're watching this movie. It's about family. Uh, it holds a 55% rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the populace, the, the normal Joes, loved this movie. Critics didn't care for it too much, especially the astute critics like the Roger Eberts out there. But I knew a lot of, I knew girlfriends in high school, or actually college at this time, that loved this movie. Uh, my dad really liked this movie i just a lot of, of friends i knew i had a, loads and loads and loads of friends that loved this movie and thought it was one of the most quotable movies ever since super bad yes the most quotable movie since super bad and this is will ferrell and adam mckay's 2008 bromance comedy <laughs> Step Brothers. Yes, this is the movie where John C. Riley and Will Ferrell play stepbrothers. Their parents get married. Their very rich parents get married. And they decide to battle it out. And they do some pretty nasty, vulgar things to each other to one-up one another. Classy stuff like that. Like I said, a lot of people love this movie. A lot of people quote it. 
I cannot remember one quote. And here we are, eight, four, five, or uh, uh, how many years has it been? Six years. Six years after its release. I really cannot remember a single thing from this movie. Other than what I'm reading, uh, there's a little tidbit right here from a, from the trailer where, you know, the whole one person's burying the other and they think the other one's dead, but he's not. And he wakes up and he hits the other guy on the head and he falls, yeah, all that stuff. This is what I got to say about it. Well, actually, here, I'll give you some statistics first. On a $65 million budget, the box office, including DVD sales, their intake was $181,807,642. This is according to wikipedia.com or .org. And again, that's on a budget of $65 million. That is insane. Again, directed by Adam McKay, written by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. This came... Right, this was the follow-up to their slightly funnier Talladega Nights, the Ricky Bobby movie that came out in 2006-ish. I didn't like Talladega Nights, and I still thought it was funnier than this movie. So that might say a little bit. The movie is disgusting, it's mean-spirited, it's cruel, it's vulgar, and it's all of these things for the sake of existing it's for the sake of being disgusting. It's for the sake of being mean and cruel and vulgar. None of these characters are are motivated by anything to warrant such trash. John C. Riley's character is a drummer. You know, so he has a drum set. And, you know, he's, no, you're, this is my drum set. It's my super cool drum set. And you're not going to touch it. Yeah, just kind of like how really douchebag brother, uh, they sound mentally challenged. And it's what I imagine a caricature of a badass, mentally challenged person would sound like and to be very protective of their drum set. But anyways, in Step Brothers, Will Ferrell goes around and bangs around on the drum set and you see him take out his testicles and drop his testicles onto the drum set. And there's a camera view looking up at his ball sack as it's going down there. The movie is littered with things like that. Maybe not as graphic visually, but definitely graphic in language and the shit that they do. And like I said, I, you know, I love vulgarity. You know, I liked, I enjoyed the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin. You know, I, I've said this before, and I really do think The 40-Year-Old Virgin was the movie that, it came out in 2006, it spawned, or it came out in 2005, 2006, but it spawned like these type of movies where it's the rapid, fast, you know, who can who can out talk the other person, you know, like who can say the, the witty, the next wittiest thing, the fastest, you know, and try to beat one another. And, you know, it was funny with 40 Old Virgin, but then every single movie after that, these crazy comedies, including the ones that I did enjoy, like The Hangover, that's the type of humor they were, you know, not a lot of witty stuff. And yada 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 yada. But the step, but Step Brothers, to me, this was the movie that I uh, that started a new trend, and that is why you have movies like I didn't care for the Heat, but like the Heat, where or the movie Tammy that just came out. You know, a lot of it is you know vulgar stuff just for the sake of being vulgar, and there's no umph behind it. A great review of Step Brothers is Roger Ebert's review. He was comparing Step Brothers to Tropic Thunder. Anything can be funny. Let me provide an example. 
I am thinking of a particular anatomical act. It is described in explicit detail in two 2008 movies, Step Brothers and the forthcoming Tropic Thunder. In Step Brothers, it sounds dirty and disgusting. In Tropic Thunder, described by Jack Black while he is tied to a tree and undergoing heroin withdrawal, it is funny. Same act, similar descriptions. What's the difference? It involves the, mecha- the mechanism of comedy, I think. The Jack Black character is desperately motivated. He will offer to do anything to be released. In Step Brothers, the language is simply showing off by talking dirty. It serves no comic function and just sort of sits there in the air making me cringe. End Roger Ebert's quote. And I totally agree. And he worded it perfectly, better than I could word anything pertaining to this right there. It was just vulgar for vulgar's sake. There's a difference between good vulgar and annoying vulgar, and this is it. And that, to me, that is the movie Step Brothers. Then again, I definitely acknowledge that this movie is loved, loved by so many people that I know. And that is why I'm the only one who hated Step Brothers. Well... By golly, that is a very, very solid argument for the hatred that you hold and the vitriol with which you encapsulate the feelings of that movie within your heart. (laughs) And I can only counter that by saying I think my movie will be an even more egregious pick to cultured people and the theater going public at large because my movie that i am the only one who hated is the movie about uh vladislav spielman perhaps you might remember him being played by adrian brody in the pianist the 2002 historical drama film directed by roman polanski and this of course was based on the autobiographical book the pianist and details uh, Mr. Spilsman's life uh, right as the uh, Germans invade Poland through the end of World War II and all of the trials and tribulations that he endured near starvation, um, the saviors found in the most unlikely of places, and basically, you know witnessing through his eyes what he witnessed and just the sheer desolation, desperation, loneliness, depression, uh, the, the loss of faith in humanity. And all of these things sound so gripping and so, you know, like amazingly uh, intense and things that you just absolutely must view and, and truly learn to get an appreciation for just exactly what some some of these people went through from the lens and the perspective of different forms of suffering. So you have naturally from the POW perspective, uh, then you of course would have things uh, from the uh, Holocaust perspective as a whole, perhaps uh, even from certain Germans' views such as Schindler's List, and then of course we have movies like The Pianist. The problem with The Pianist is not the story. The problem with The Pianist is not the subject matter. 
the problem with the pianist is it's so god awful fucking retardedly long. So fucking long. It is so long, I almost wanted to kill myself. I mean, seriously, I get that you're trying to show me how desolate and how terrible it was and how depressing it must have been. I get it. I understand. But I don't need two and a half hours of Adrian Brody crying and wandering around a bomb-ridden city. I don't fucking need it. That does not make a movie. Oh my god, it's so bad. It's so long and it's just so incredibly depressing. And there's nothing redeeming about it. Because even the people who help him die. It's, I don't get it. And, 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 and it's just so long. So, so long. Uh, the cinematography is just completely bland on top of that. It's bland. I get, I understand what they're trying to get, to, and I understand what they're trying to show you, but that doesn't stop it from being bland. It doesn't stop it from being the same fucking thing over and over and over and over again. And it doesn't stop it from being the same point of view over and over and over and over and over for two and a half hours. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. I wanted to cry. I wanted. To, I was literally checking the f- I was moving my mouse almost every minute how much fucking longer is this thing going to be it's one it won uh best picture it got uh best director um I'm sorry it was nominated for best picture uh but it won for best director best adapted screenplay and best actor um in France, it did actually win Best Picture there. I, 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 it, it got, uh, it, it was a $35 million budget, made $120 million, so almost four times its budget. Critical success, box office hit, and the worst fucking Christmas gift of 2002. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love I the pianist. Do you do you like Step Brothers? It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate it, but I mean, I'd probably give it maybe like two and a quarter stars. I didn't really like it, but I mean, I don't. I definitely don't hate it. I hate this movie. I sincerely and truly one star hate this movie. There is nothing redeeming about this movie whatsoever. If this had been. If this had been, say, like a short film, say even even 30 minutes, 35 to 40 minutes, and done as a short film, totally amazing, totally gripping, could have told the same story, and it would have been priceless. But they made it two and a half hours, and by God, that was two hours too long. We need to do a we need to do a, a segment of rebuttals of one sometime. A uh, I'm the only one who hated it rebuttal seg- segment could be could be funny. Fun. That defeats the purpose of it, though. I know, I know. We already understand. That's the whole reason this thing is called I'm the Only One Who Hated True. It. True. But you did give me an idea for uh, for my next I'm the Only One Who Hated It, and that would be The Piano. Oh, fair enough. I mean, you know, I don't need to see Harvey Keitel's dick. That's, you know. And he, he was very, very uh, happy to show that off. Yes. In several different films. Oh, yeah. Uh, you see that monkey schlong Lieutenant. a lot. Yeah, Bad no, Lieutenant, uh, and then the piano. Those are the top. Those are the first two I can think of off the top of my head. 
but I'm sure there's, yeah, there's plenty. Um, yeah. So there you go. I think, I think I have done enough justice in the six minutes that I have just been bitching about this film. So thus concludes, I'm the only one who hated it. Once again, Tim's pick was Step Brothers from 2005 and my, I'm sorry, 2008. And then my pick was, uh, The Pianist from 2002. Next week, we will be bringing back discussions with Matt and Tim, Masterpiece Discussion. And we're going to be talking about uh, the RopeOfSilicon.com article, courtesy of Brad Brevet. It's called, The Answer is Not to Abolish the PG-13 Rating. And this is an op-ed that is a response to a Cinema Blend article from CinemaBlend.com, courtesy of Gabe Toro, of why the PG-13 rating should be abolished. The Rope of Silicon article does a great job of encapsulating everything from the CinemaBlend.com article. So uh, that's going to be the main point, but just in case anybody really wants to get in-depth, you can also check that out as well from CinemaBlend.com. And that is going to be our bonus segment next week. So I believe we are simply down to the last one, are we not, sir? That is correct. All right, then here we go, folks. It's... Yes, it's the movies. This week's movies are Grand Piano, Drew, the man behind the poster, and Lawless. So, where do you want to start, sir? Let's start with Lawless. Alright, Lawless, 2012 American crime drama film. It's directed by John Hillcoat, stars Shia LaBeouf, Tom Hardy, Gary Oldman, Mia Wysikowska, Jessica Chastain, Jason Clark, and Guy Pierce. This, of course, is very loosely based on the Bondurant, Bondurant brothers. Uh, they were a Franklin County moonshine and family back during the Depression and, of course, during Prohibition. And it kind of goes into the um, the 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 whole. Oh, I guess there was a. What is the? I guess the it was a conspiracy. I guess is what they called it. The the Great Franklin County Moonshine Conspiracy is is more or less what this is loosely based around, from the wettest county in the world. That's kind of where the whole genesis of this movie comes from. Now, I must say, Jessica Chastain, she is super fucking hot, and I'm very glad you get to see her naked in this movie. And I mean, naked. Yes. I would give this movie five stars, just based on that if I could, but unfortunately I can't. That's not fair to the rest of the movie. If that's even her, it could be digital breasts. Please don't ruin that for me. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> what, what, why would you do that to me? Stop it. <laughs> um, no, seriously, uh, you know, yeah, she, she is 37. She's just a few months uh, older than me. And wow, just wow. So you got that going for you. All right, so seriously, though. All right, so this movie is covering primarily the three brothers. 
they are played by Shia LaBeouf, who is the youngest. John uh, played is Jack. Tom Hardy, who I believe is the oldest. He's Forrest, and then Jason Clark is Howard. And Tom Hardy's character Forrest is clearly the leader, and Jack is. He's just a youngin. He he wants to be a part of the gang, but he just doesn't seem to have the grit. But he's by God, he's got the brains. And of course, everybody in the town is into the moon shining. Everybody's making their own, and nobody's even pretending to try and stop them. And then, of course, there is a bad guy who comes in by the name of Charlie Rakes. He's played by Guy Pierce, and he is basically a kind of like a an attorney or like a special deputy or whatever uh, there to try and clean it up when really all he's trying to do is just take a piece of the action for himself and route everything through Chicago um, Gary Oldman's character is Floyd Banner he's supposed to be one of the big higher ups during the liquor uh, liquor running era um, that would take the stuff and sell it directly into Chicago um, this the movie is it does a lot of things well but the problem is is that it they seem to want to try and focus more on Jack's story and and the way that Jack kind of views uh, his family and they more or less try to juxtapose that with the legend that is the Bondurant clan the problem is is that neither one really seems to reconcile itself with the other. And you it, it almost makes it feel weird. Like it's always trying to build up to something, but then it stops and switches gears to try and focus on the same problem from a different angle. And every time they do that is usually when they shift back to Jack's story. Uh, the acting overall is is really well done very well placed the only person i really had any kind of problem believing was guy pierce's characterization now i don't necessarily hold that against him per se i really think this one kind of falls more on the director because they were trying to make him so incredibly over the top the obvious and evil bad guy that must be stopped at all costs that it really kind of put Guy Pierce into a corner in terms of how he was going to be able to portray this characterization. Um, he's definitely creepy enough. Uh, his mannerisms are very interesting. But again, it's all surface level stuff. And any time that they would try and shift a gear to go back to him, it's usually in the realm of how Jack is going to be dealing with him. So they keep trying to shift back and forth between how the public perceives them, which is how the movie views it when they would switch to people like Forrest, again played by Tom Hardy, and then Howard to a lesser degree. And then again, when it's time to look at Jack, well, it's basically just being shown and portrayed from Jack's point of view. And... And around and around it goes. And then it just continues to lead up. And then all of a sudden there's just this, you know, massive shootout at the end. And then you have just this kind of interesting, uh, almost like an afterward, really. Um, and 
it's just a weird movie. It's it's really just kind of weird. Cinematography's good. Uh, the music is good. The action is really interesting. Uh, it, it's it's got a very um, fun kind of feel to it, despite the level of violence, and especially one scene in particular. But still, it's weird. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm. I. I, I ah. I want to say three stars, but mm, yeah, I'll just say three stars. I mean, I liked it, but it is weird, and I mean, it's eking in at three stars. So, yeah, three stars. Okay, I'm done. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I agree with Matt. I give this one 3.25 stars, and basically every single thing that he just said, uh, with the exception of... I liked Guy Pierce's characterization. Yeah, it was it was obvious that he was the bad guy, but you know, it was entertaining and kind of fun to watch, although it was kind of odd that he was the one that really stands out, but I guess yeah, he's trying to be like the crooked guy from Chicago. Um, and really the only thing I just have to add to what Matt said is that the really the movie really lights up when the violence kicks in. And there's a lot of just really random kind of like these violent little vignettes that take place throughout the movie. And it's very rarely is it kind of one whole, not like an action piece, but like a, a violent, like, like, a, like a long fight or anything like that. It's very kind of sporadic. And when, usually when that happens throughout the movie, it happens quite often. That's when, like, you really get invested in what's going on, and you really kind of get caught up in things. But then when everything stops, and close to the beginning of the movie, when it's still setting things up, it's just kind of, you know, you're just left to enjoy the the sound effects of the locusts and the cinematography. So, it was pretty bizarre. 3.25. Well, okay then. Where do you want to go from here, sir? Let's go to Drew... The man behind the poster. Yes, Drew, the man behind the poster. Okay, um, 2010 documentary. No, 2010, 2011 uh, documentary. And basically this is just kind of going over the last 30 years of art that this man has made. And he has done more than 150 movie posters. He also got his start, actually... um, fresh out of art school doing album covers and if anyone is familiar the the easiest one to recognize would definitely be uh, Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare and if you've seen that album cover then this is the man we're talking about if you are more into the movie thing we're talking about a guy who did uh, all of the Indiana Jones posters, all the Back to the Future posters, Rambo, he did the Star Wars film series, um, you know, E.T., the Police Academy. So you have definitely seen and been influenced by this man's work. As a matter of fact, even some of the shittiest movies in the world that have better posters, like Cutthroat Island, he did the poster for that, for example. Tons of movies like that, that he's done. And you would be so surprised to know that he did that. Um, And basically it just kind of covers briefly his youth. 
but more how he broke into the artistry business through doing album covers and then how that led him to transition into movies and his career over that time period and even up to and including basically his retirement um the best part about this is that you actually get to see from the perspective of people like Michael J. Fox, Steve Gutenberg, Harrison Ford, Steven Spielberg, Gary, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Gary, good lord, George Lucas, um, all these people who they have been so influenced by this man's work. Steven Spielberg goes as far to say as the way he does a poster you feel the need to live up to that expectation that he creates from the embodiment of that poster. And it's, I mean, it's just so amazing to watch him. And he's such a laid back guy. You, uh, this was something that Tim and I were kind of going back and forth because our, our ratings on this are pretty similar, but, uh, and I'll let him go into his side of it, but they do peek on this one thing is he is so laid back it's just a ridiculous contrast to see all these amazing titans of the film industry fawning over this guy and he's just sitting there going yeah it's pretty cool i you know i i came up with like et in 24 hours or something you know like what the shit i mean um it's stuff like that i mean and he's and if it were if it were anybody else, you would you would feel like they were being an asshole about it. But he's just you 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 see him as he is so genuine that you you know that he's not being facetious. He's not being uh, self-aggrandizing or anything. He's he's just simply literally simply just telling how the things happen from his point of view. And it's just so amazing to watch. And you see all these people who have just been, who are so moved by his work and uh, who have literally had their careers almost defined by his work. And then there he is, just, hey, this is me. How's, how you doing? <laughs> uh, and I loved it. Not to mention, you get to see all the work. You get to really, you kind of get a feel for how the industry has changed, um, where the industry is going, and whether or not you agree with the changes that the industry has made, there is no denying that he has definitely had a distinct impact upon it. And it's got it's great pacing, it's never slow, never dull. Um, as a matter of fact, when they're showing certain pieces of work and they're interviewing in certain aspects, you can see pieces behind them and stuff. And as the documentary progresses, you can start to get a feel for kind of where these pieces were coming from, from his mind. And then by the end, you know, you'll get that confirmation or not, depending on what your, you know, what your thought processes uh, were on that. But it's just a great documentary. I loved it. Five stars. Cannot recommend it enough, especially if you are any kind of film fan. Forget just if you were a Star Wars fan or, you know, Back to the Future or anything like that. Just, man, if you are, if you have any kind of respect for the movies and, and, and you are above the age of 30, for crying out loud, you will want to watch this documentary and you will get something out of it. So, 
Yeah. Five stars for me. Take it away, Tim. This is a piece of movie history that I had, I did not know anything about it. Like, this is pretty spectacular. Now, I knew, obviously, we knew who Drew Struzan is, and I knew he designed some of the most iconic posters for movies, but I had no idea that he got his start doing album covers. And he would have been perfectly happy just working on album covers. And he was making crap money until he was doing movie posters. And it's just super fascinating stuff. Like one of his first uh, popular albums he got was Black Sabbath, Blood, uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And it's, he talks about how he works himself into the characters like he if you watch some uh look at some of his albums earlier work it's him in it if there's a man in the picture it's usually a a version of himself and it's just so 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 damn cool and also when i think of indiana jones and they mention this i forget who mentions this in the documentary uh they say that normally when people think of indiana jones they think of the indiana jones on the cover you know, the poster for Indiana Jones. And it's absolutely perfect. He had a way of showing a, showing the true identity of a character in a picture, you know, in a drawing. He did airbrushing, you know, pencil work. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And this movie goes completely in depth. It doesn't skimp out on anything. You have plenty of information. On Rotten Tomatoes, for some reason... It is 50% rotten, and that is just absolutely ridiculous. I was reading, talking to Matt beforehand, and I was telling about some of uh, the reviews for it were pretty ridiculous. And I don't know, I mean, this might not be like your, you know, waiting for Superman or your super popular active killing documentary. It's very, very informative. And the movie or the documentary features so many people that absolutely love this guy. They don't love his, I mean, they love his work, but in addition to that, they love this guy, and you can totally tell. And, yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. To me, it's a four-star movie. The only, the reason why I don't give it a full five stars, because I'm giving it so much praise, is because you have so many people that love the movie, and then it goes to him, I love the movie, that love Drew Struzan, but it goes to him, and he's like this average normal Joe. Like, every time he cuts to George Lucas, Spielberg, uh, Frank Darabout, they put him on a pedestal. You know, they talk about him as if he was a deity of some kind. And it kind of gets a little overwhelming, you know. And, and to me, it could have... The movie could have... Or the documentary could have meant more if it wasn't just a ton of praise because even when Struzan meets Harrison Ford for the first time because he doesn't meet Harrison Ford until in, until I think 2010 at a convention somewhere and it shows him talking to George Lucas and they're just kind of like walking around Lucas films and George is showing him like the pictures that he loves and he's commenting on it Whereas I think Matt took it as like a genuine, like, these guys love each other, you know, or with Harrison Ford, like, oh, Harrison Ford is, cannot find the words to express how big of a fan he is of Drew Struzan's work, because Drew Struzan, 
made Harrison Ford. You know, he made Harrison Ford look better. He made Indiana Jones, the character, look better on a poster. But to me, those interactions that Drew has with these celebrities, these directors, and whatnot, it doesn't happen often because these people hold them on such a, you know, put them on, on such a pedestal, the conversation is a little awkward. And that's what I kind of got out of that that type of thing. It was just like, it was just a little awkward, like, because he is just like the, yeah, I mean, I did this picture because it is what I wanted to do. Uh, it, it's easy, you know, I just did what I wanted to do. And like, you know, he did a picture, like what Matt was saying, uh, like an E.T. poster, less than 24 hours. He had it and turned it in the next day. Uh, I mean, it's an incredible guy, pretty much the critique I have, the negative criticism is mainly an opinion, so I definitely definitely, definitely suggest that you guys check out this movie it's really, really good, four stars right on, right on okay, well then that leaves us with Grand Piano, the 2013 Spanish thriller film starring Elijah Wood and John Cusack and uh, this is basically about a guy by the name of Tom Selznick, uh, who was an up-and-coming concert pianist until he developed stage fright, co- uh, uh, or, or uh, yeah, basically stage fright, fuck it. Um, he breaks down and abruptly leaves during a performance. He's very eccentric as it is. He comes back four or five years later, and this is his comeback performance, and uh, as he's playing piano, he notices red inked uh, stuff in the sheet music so he starts looking and it turns out if he plays one wrong note in one of the most complicated pieces ever ever written that uh, he will be shot in the head well and, and like his wife too if he tries to like warn her or whatever basically yeah um, John Cusack is the bad guy I, I'm sorry this movie has one of the most ridiculous one of the most ridiculous premises ever and that's okay I'm willing to forgive that because what one man's ridiculous can be another man's inventive and so I'm I was willing to go with this until about we agreed it was a little over halfway through the movie uh, it's about 60 percent of the way through the movie when you realize that this is a heist, it's, it's basically nothing more than a glorified heist. Playing the piano piece perfectly is actually one part of the heist. And that is what... Is that it's, it's at that point that the movie completely lost me. The setup is pretty interesting, and when they initially go with the whole you're gonna die if you play one piece wrong, they actually built up some pretty interesting tension. It has Elijah Wood, he has to go away from the piano uh, to go get an earpiece and stuff, and of course, given his history and his eccentricities as it was, or as they were, it works with the angle of the movie, especially the first time that he does it, and there's this collective gasp from the crowd, like, oh my god, he's freaking out. Um, props to his conductor buddy for not stopping, I guess. Um, and the, so he goes to get the earpiece, comes back and sits down, and people are kind of like, ah. Um, 
so that kind of stuff works, and it actually starts to build some really interesting uh, dynamics there between how the character of Tom Selznick, again played by Elijah Wood, is going to react with having to do what needs to be done against the backdrop of John Cusack talking to him in his ear. The problem is, is that all of the things that they use to keep the intrigue going are, they just get progressively and progressively more unbelievable. All right, fine, he gets up the one time. I say it's like eight times that he ends up getting up. Uh, Tim, we were talking about this before the show, and he's like, he's really thinking, like, it's at max five times. Let's just say it was five. Let's say it's four. That's three times too many for him to be getting up because he's literally like taking opportunities to like the, to do things to try and figure out what's happening and how to work the situation in his favor, which is fine because you know it's a cat and mouse kind of thing. Okay, I get it, but you're doing it in the most unbelievable kind of way against the most unbelievable backdrop to begin with, and then it all leads up to you got to play this piece perfectly so I can steal some money. I mean, come on. It's not that good, and, and that that's at that point that I'm just, I gave up the movie. I just gave up on the movie. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, seriously. Uh, and it just led to a completely unsatisfying ending for me. I uh, I just I didn't like it. It's it was just one one stretch too far. It was it was very tenuous at best, given the premise of the movie to begin with. And while they did a nice job of building up tension in the beginning and making things interesting based on this premise, they took it one step too far and the whole thing falls apart. I Maybe people in Spain like it this way. I don't know. But I certainly did not. At the end of the day, I don't like this movie, but I'm willing to give it some, uh, some credit on the merits leading into it. So I'm going to say two and a half stars. It's an okay movie. I personally didn't like it, but on a technical level, it's an okay flick. So I'm going to say two and a half stars. Go ahead, Tim. Bring us home. I really, really, really like this movie. Uh, to quickly, a little, uh, to rebuttal what Matt was saying, how it just didn't make sense with having with uh, having to rely on. Lodge Wood's character to as he's you know in this trying to figure out what the hell is going on and kind of having like panic attacks and freaking out he gets up after well it's after his movement and he's playing and so it's like a pause or it's a break or whatever that's when he gets up and leaves the stage because a he's either told to or b it's at, it's close to the beginning and he's freaking out because he finds out that's when he found out that his mother or his, not his mother, his his uh, his wife is in danger, and so he freaks out. And to me, that didn't bother me as much, because you have to keep in mind, folks, that it's not just a guy at, a you know, just a drabby concert hall performing. No, he is in a beautiful theater with beautiful lighting, this really trippy-looking red, crushed thing going up behind him in a v-shape you have this beautiful orchestra playing this beautiful or it's symphony i guess yeah just playing this beautiful music and i'm talking beautiful music and this amazing 
fluid camera work that only that not many people can really do right and have it be effective with the type of movie like this because I mean the movie is 80 minutes long and it has 10 minutes of credits because of all the freaking money and you know the people they use to make this movie. And that's why if there was something hammy or something to where he kept getting up in the middle of playing, or not in the middle of playing, but after he was finished playing and he would just leave the stage, didn't affect me too much. I mean, there were definitely a couple moments, which is why I'm not rating this movie a full five stars, uh, that were definitely hammy. Hammy, hammy, that, you know. But overall, I thought this movie was beautifully made and wonderfully shot. I mean, it has the tension, the intrigue, uh fantastic camera movement all mixed together with well-paced uh editing and timing and really good performances i mean really the the john cusack voice which you know it's him i'm not spoiling anything over you know there's a couple really hammy moments when he's explaining stuff to him through the earpiece and uh, yeah i mean there's no i guess really avoiding that and criticizing it but again, overall, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, and God, yeah, just the, the look of the movie. And every, just, it, yeah, I was just, I was thoroughly, 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 or very surprised, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I give this one 4.25 stars. Even though, yes, it does have the hammy moments, I just, I was drawn into the movie, again, with the camera movement uh the use of the interesting use of blue screens to section off your viewing screen so you can see somebody walking down a hallway and then what you think is you know the other part of the lens looking into the theater no that's sectioned off so suddenly the camera on the right just starts zooming into the you know just stuff like that to where it kind of cover covers up where Obviously, they didn't have too much room in the budget to build these grandiose sets or to shoot on a legitimate location or, you know, timing, or maybe it was a reshoot. I don't know. But, you know, it worked. You know, they tried to do something fun with it. And overall, that's what I think this movie is. It's not trying to be anything more than what the movie is, you know? It's it's a movie about a mysterious piano that can unlock wealth and riches by performing one of the most difficult pieces ever made, which is actually a pretty cool song. So, I, I don't know, I, I can talk about this movie a lot, because I mean, I, I honestly enjoyed it that much. So, I recommend it. 4.25, the grand piano for me. Well, it looks like we were both pretty far off of each other's mark on this movie. So, it'll be fun to see if anybody... Uh, agrees or disagrees or thinks we're both dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So, alright. Well, I guess that's going to bring us to the end of the show. Next week's movies are going to be Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Snowpiercer, and The Ice Storm. Which, I guess, brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Alright, well, the music, as always, that you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are, as always, the SLS Cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show, that's all one word, the show, at 
SLScast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can also go to Facebook and search the SLScast there. And of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Megan Fox, I get to say this. I haven't gone completely insane, but it might happen soon. And this is Tim saying farewell until next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.